go to Spain today and go to see the symbol of Muslim culture at its highest, and you will most likely go to the great palace and fortress of Granada. The fabulous Alhambra, as amazing as this site is, it was not built at the height of Muslim power when the Umayyad Caliphate was at its strongest. No, it was an expression of a Muslim state still holding on to a small foothold in the south of Spain before it would eventually be driven off. We're talking about the Emirate of Granada, a small remnant of the once great Caliphate which managed not only to survive but to flourish for centuries, becoming another part of the golden age of Islam. And that is our story today. So please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Well, if you've been following the last two episodes, you know where we're at. The once great Muslim Caliphate in Spain had fought on and off wars against the Christian kingdoms, beginning actually right after the Muslims first arrived in Spain. But those wars took on a very different character when popes became involved, making the so-called Reconquista in Spain part of the Crusades, and at times an even higher priority than the Crusades in Palestine. The tide had turned against the Muslims with the fall of the once great Umayyad Caliphate in Spain in the year 1031. The Muslim side had a resurgence, as we saw, with the arrival of the Moroccan Berber dynasties, first the Almoravids in 1086 and the Almohads in 1147. But as we saw at the end of the last episode, the main threat to the Almohads who had just inflicted a major defeat on the Christians to the north, in fact, was not the Crusaders, but actually rebellions back home in North Africa, and particularly it was in Tunisia. It was those rebellions that would eventually bring down the Almohad dynasty, who ended up ruling for a little over a century when it was all done. Muslim Spain once again disintegrated into an assortment of largely independent city-states, and the Reconquista took full advantage of this weakness. But this time, the momentum would never swing back. Well, the central figure in this part of the story is Muhammad ibn Yusuf ibn Nasr, known as Muhammad I of Granada the founder of the Nasserid dynasty, which of course is named after him as Ibn Nasr. Well, this man, Muhammad, is a somewhat controversial figure. He's re remembered for creating a strong and flourishing state in Granada, and of course its greatest uh, remnant is the fabulous Alhambra Palace, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and the most famous Muslim landmark in Spain, but Muhammad is also known essentially for giving up the fight against the Christians in the north and accepting a small foothold in the south, 
that would survive for centuries. If we look at where Granada is and where the Emirate of Granada was, it is just a small piece on the southern coast of Spain. Now, it all depends on how you look at this. Was Muhammad ibn Yusuf the guy who sold out, who made accommodations with the Christians and gave up on the jihad that could have taken back the peninsula? Or was he a smart operator, someone who managed to hold on to something and actually uh, managed to make it flourish and benefit the um, Muslim community in North Africa as well, instead of getting wiped out? Well, we'll never know because we'd have to go back and find out what would have happened if he had acted differently. But, for better or worse, Granada is an important chapter in the history of the Muslim Golden Age, and Muhammad ibn Yusuf is a very important person in that history. So, when we're talking about the Golden Age of Islam, you know, Granada is like maybe a Silver Age, a minor Golden Age. So who was this person? Well, Muhammad ibn Yusuf was born in 1195 in the small village of Arjona, which is about three quarters of the way down the Iberian Peninsula if you're going from north to south. And this town was on the frontier between Muslim and Christian territory. So that gives you an idea of how much things had shifted. You know, back in the glory days, uh, the Muslim forces were pushing up into southern France and actually controlled parts of southern France. Now we're talking about a quarter, maybe, of the Iberian Peninsula still under Muslim control at this time and being attacked from all over. Now, Muhammad came from a humble farming family. Um, in the Christian chronicles, particularly the chronicles of Castilla, which is the, the main ones we have, they emphasize his lower-class background. Uh, however, once he came into power, the Muslim records would stress that his family, the Banu Ahmar, were descended from a companion of the Prophet. And this is pretty common, by the way. Uh, there are people everywhere in the Muslim world who claim descent from the Prophet or one of his companions. Uh, and they, I mean, they are spread out in places that are pretty far, far away. But by the same token, you also have places you can visit in Ireland, in England, where supposedly Jesus and his family went. So, you know, historical accuracy is not so much the big thing as what the claim stands for. You know, it shows what you believe in and what you consider important. But the, the point is that Muhammad was, he was not born into luxury. He was not born into the palace. And he had the character of a rural Sufi. We've talked about Sufis in the past. Um, but he continued to dress like one even after he became the emir and had this huge palace. And the word Sufi uh, comes from wool. It recurs to these sort of coarse woolen garments that Sufis would wear, something you would expect like a herder to wear. Uh, and that's what he continued to do even after that. So he very much uh, played on this rural um, image that he had. Well, we talked a lot last time about the Al-Wahid dynasty from Morocco and how their fortunes went up and down. But when uh, this man, Muhammad ibn Yusuf, was in his 20s, uh, the Al-Wahid dynasty finally fell. And the immediate cause is one that was going to sound very familiar, and that is the sultan died without naming an heir, 
And as we know, um, in the Muslim world, there was no set procedure for how that worked. Okay, it didn't go to the oldest son. And we saw what that leads to time and time again. Uh, it leads to civil war. But really, the long-term cause for the fall of this dynasty was internal decline. So when you have a succession crisis at the top, which often happens, um, then that tears apart the kingdom. And so powerful dynasties, even when they have this, are able to survive. Remember, even after Harun or Rashid died, there was a civil war between his sons. But that was still what is considered the, the peak of the Golden Age. Not so in this case. Um, basically, you had no one with the power to hold all the different city-states together, and they largely became independent, once again, which is how they had been uh, before the Berbers shown up. And so this is the world that Muhammad would have known, and he learned to navigate in this environment, and he learned to carve out a place for himself. So the immediate catalyst for change, though, is going to be another guy, that's Muhammad ibn Yusuf ibn Hud. And those two names, being so similar, can definitely get confusing. And the important thing here, again, is not trying to remember all these individuals and where they came from, but what it says about the era, that there were people with power all over the place, and they were fighting for power. So anyway, uh, ibn Hud... He was a descendant of the family that once ruled the city of Zaragoza, which we saw in the past was an object of many battles between Christians and Muslims in the early days. It's in northern Spain. Uh, by this time, that area had been lost for centuries. But the family was still, I mean, they migrated to the south, but they were still an influential family. Well, with the Almohads in decline, and the Sultan actually gone off to Africa to fight a rebellion there, Ibn Hud takes advantage of the weakness, and he rebels against the Almohads and declares independence. Well, it just so happens at this time, the Almohads are in no condition to return and try and stop him, and so Ibn Hud ends up controlling much of Muslim Iberia, which, of course, is very much reduced from what it once was, but what's left, he's pretty much controlling for about nine years. Well, Ibn Hud wants to be more than just a local ruler who seizes power for a while and then loses it. He thinks he can build something bigger. Now, he's kind of right, but he won't be the one who does it. Uh, for the meantime, what he does is he declares loyalty to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad and proclaims himself to be Amir al-Mu'minin, which is the Prince of the Believers which essentially is the, the caliph's deputy in Spain, the way the titles uh, worked. Now, if you've been following the fortunes of the Abbasids in this series, um, you know they're really not powerful at this point. Uh, they never had influence in North Africa, and they never made it to Spain. Okay, So this is a very symbolic gesture. And even back in Baghdad, uh, they have been greatly weakened. They're basically figureheads for the Turks. And if you're looking at the timeline, it's only about 20 years in which the Abbasids will collapse. They will lose Baghdad. But, you know, the Caliph is very useful uh, because he's a figurehead. And so someone who wants to have legitimacy 
you know, you get the Khalif to, to bless off on it, and that gives it legitimacy. And so they've been using Abbasid Khalifs, uh, you know, as a rubber stamp for a long time. In fact, even after Baghdad falls, the Mamluks in Cairo will move the Khalif to Cairo and use him as a total figurehead there. I mean, he is really no power whatsoever, but they can say, hey, we're ruling in the name of the Khalif. Well, Ibn Hud is going to do that. He's going to say, I am I am a servant of the Khalif over here, in which, you know, the connection between Baghdad and Granada, uh, I mean, it's non-existent. So that's um, whatever. That's like, you know, nowadays taking over uh, part of New Jersey and saying you work for the emperor of Japan or something. Okay, so this might have been the beginning of the Hud dynasty, except that Ibn Hud loses a major battle against the kingdom of Castilla in 1231 at Jerez. Now, it is one of many of the battles in this conflict that marks some kind of turning point. In this case, it's the end of his credibility and his popular support. How much so? Well, um, basically his name becomes, quote, the loser. And we've seen the, the Al-Mawahid sultans were known uh, by names on variations of the victor, various versions of that. He's known as the one who lost. That's not generally a good thing if you want power. However, in this environment, Ibn Hud's loss is Muhammad ibn Nasr's gain. And this is the guy who eventually is going to establish a stable state that is going to survive, however improbably, for a few centuries. Now, this starts out really small, I mean, very small. We were talking about a guy in a, in a rural village from a uh, farming family. He actually lives in a tiny village out there. Um, and so when Ibn Hud falls all the cities start declaring their independence. Well, Muhammad's town of Arjona is one of those. And they actually do. The residents hold an assembly to elect a leader. I mean, they're such a small town, they don't, they don't have a leader. Um, so they, let's, let's vote. They end up picking Muhammad ibn Yusuf because he's a pe person they all respect. Uh, among other things, he's known for his piety, his sort of aesthetic lifestyle. Well, despite these humble beginnings, you would not think this is going to be the beginning of a dynasty at all, but uh, dynasties come from very unlikely places. Uh, he has a small band of warriors, uh, but he's very successful. And so you know, winning battles is what it's all about at this time. Uh, he manages to win some battles and, you know, Things are right for him. The, the enemies are weak at the right times. His group manages to cap, uh, capture the former capital city of Cordoba. I talked about, you know, was it once the uh, greatest city in all of Europe and the important city of Sevilla. I mean, now he's from a small town, but now he's captured, you know, some of the most important cities in Spain. Well, he doesn't hold on to any of these for more than a month. And in fact... Um, after he loses, he ends up declaring his own loyalty to Ibn Hud, the guy that we mentioned, the loser, 
who has now managed to build up some more support. So it would seem like he's just a flash in the pan and things are going back. But this is the difference between a smart leader, one who can adapt and change history, and one who doesn't. So Muhammad learns from this experience. And like him or not, this is going to change the course of history in Spain. Uh, these fights against the Christians are not going well. They they're tend to be losing. He's looking at the writing on the wall, and basically uh, they can keep fighting amongst themselves, keep putting up a defensive site, uh, fight against Castilla, but eventually they're just going to be driven further and further south until they're in the water. And so he makes a logical choice. If you can't beat them, join them. So Muhammad ibn Yusuf allies with the king of Castilla, that's uh, Ferdinand, to help him take over Cordoba and Sevilla. In the year 1236, Cordoba falls to Castile, and it marks the loss of the traditional capital of the peninsula. You know, this had been the once great site. But in return, um, the king, Ferdinand, who is now the most powerful guy in the area, puts Muhammad in place as the ruler of Granada, which is located in southern Spain, very close to the Mediterranean and in Gibraltar. So they think, well, we're just giving him this southern city and we're taking all the good stuff. And in fact, Muhammad becomes a vessel of Castilla. He pays an annual tribute. In fact, it's the largest source of income um, to the Christian kingdom. I mean, it's, it's the largest expense for the Muslim kingdom, okay? Uh, and furthermore, just to really solidify things, as part of the ceremony, Muhammad has to kiss the hand of King Ferdinand. How do we know this? Because the Castilian records make a big deal out of it, and there are still plenty of oil paintings you can see today of Muhammad kissing the hand of this great Christian liberator. Okay, so, I mean, it would seem like this is just a defeat. Um, and one could definitely criticize Muhammad at this point for selling out his comrades uh, for his own gain, getting himself a little piece of the action. And there's definitely a lot of that going on. But on the one hand, one could also say that what he's done here is going to bring the Muslims in Spain two and a half more centuries that they might not have had, and a flourishing state, uh, a capital of culture and of economic power, rather than a place that is just constantly under siege. Well, that's the way a lot of historians see it, and this is why we have the Emirate of Granada. That's the story of Muhammad ibn Ahmar, and um, of course, he has to pass on power when he dies, but unlike what happened in the Almohad dynasty, power passes on pretty smoothly to his son, Muhammad II. This was planned all along, 
And that in itself is very significant. Uh, and Muhammad II is he's known as Al-Faqih, is his name. Well, Al-Faqih is an expert in Islamic law. And that's what he was. That's what he studied. So he had an extensive educational background. Um, and this also refers to the fact not only his own knowledge, but when he took over, he formalized the institutions of the, the emirate. So faqih, meaning you know, making laws. So that's what he did. He even had served as chief minister or the vizier under his father. So he had a lot of political experience. Uh, the father's death was not too sudden or unexpected. And so this set up the pattern well. So we go from one strong ruler to another strong ruler, and then another one after him, who are going to really develop institutions, flesh them out, develop them even uh, more elaborately. And this is just a big change from what has been going on in the peninsula um, for, for centuries, really. Okay, so this is one of the reasons the Emirate of Granada flourished for two and a half centuries. Well, Muhammad II of Faqih, he was a very skillful politician, which he needed to be, because essentially uh, Granada is caught in between the Christian kingdom to the north and the Berber kingdom in Morocco, which at this time was now the Marinid uh, state. Now, both of those powers had designs on Granada. Of course, the, um, the crusaders from the north want to drive out the Muslims completely and consolidate all of uh, the Iberian Peninsula, which they eventually will do. Uh, but the Berbers also want to come back uh, again. I mean, remember, it's been basically three Berber dynasties that have gone to Spain and taken over. And the Marinids, who are powerful in Morocco, I mean, they can see that happening once again. So, uh, Muhammad al-Faqih, he's got to be very careful in making alliances. Uh, he wants to balance both sides off against each other, but essentially he wants to keep Granada independent and not getting swallowed up by either one. Uh, so he allies with Castilla in order to take over some cities, uh, but he never got what he was promised. And so he switched sides and makes an alliance with Abu Yusuf, the Moroccan sultan who lands a force in Spain and helps him seize the ports on the Straits of Gibraltar. But things would swing back and forth very often. Uh, and in fact, uh, when Muhammad II died, he was preparing an offensive against Castilla with the support of the Spanish Christian kingdom, Aragon. And so he's playing all these alliances off uh, against uh, one another, but doing it successfully that he doesn't get swallowed. Okay, uh, now just because he's a sharp politician doesn't mean that al-Faqih did not play the religion card when it suited him. Remember, he knows Islamic law very well, and he's very, uh, very good at applying this. So when he needs Abu Yusuf, the Moroccan sultan, to come bail him out, um, you know, he, of course he begs him, but he also makes it sort of a challenge. And so he writes them this letter that really uh, questions Abu Yusuf, asking him whether he is going to abandon his religious duty to fight the, quote, Trinitarians, meaning the, you know, the polytheists who worship these three gods, and to, quote, see churches, uh, see mosques turned into churches where, quote, 
God is not worshipped. Okay, uh, so wow. I mean, this is this is really throwing it down. Are you going to abandon your duty, your religious duty to God? Huh? Uh, you know, so he's he's asking for help, but he's being pretty bold about it. But we also saw uh, he could forget all that stuff pretty quick and cozy up to the the Christians when he needed to. Okay. Uh, so anyway, while he's playing off these alliances and keeping Granada independent, he also expands the trading links in the Mediterranean. Uh, by virtue of where Granada is located, uh, they're going to be a very important uh, maritime economic power. Now, the Straits of Gibraltar was a major site for trade. And so even though we talk about the Straits of Gibraltar like it's one place, uh, there are a lot of different ports along the Straits. In fact, all, all the kingdoms had ports there. Uh, Castilla, Morocco, Granada, they all have ports there. So uh, the Granadan ports, they established trading ties with the, the great powers of Italy, the great commercial powers, Genoa, Venice, Pisa. Uh, and of course, those are Christian states, and the Crusades are going on at this time. But Muhammad gave them very favorable trade agreements, uh, tariff rates, and Granada was an important meeting point for goods uh, not only coming from Asia, from the Middle East, uh, but also from uh, gold coming up from Africa. We talked about that several episodes ago, but uh, down in Mali was a great center of gold. I mean, a tremendous amount of gold that actually, um, you know, Changed the economies and threw the established economies uh, completely out of out of whack because it was so much. Well, that's coming up from Africa uh, through Morocco and going into Spain and then the rest of Europe. So this is a very important uh, trade. In fact, it's it's with this gold. This is how they're able to pay off the um, uh, King Ferdinand with the annual tribute. So this idea that we hear, you know, of a continuous reconquista, a holy war. You know, when you go down and actually look in the details, it's, it's not exactly that accurate. I mean, there is a whole lot of interaction, political, economic, uh, going on. Maybe if we look, step back and look at the macro picture, that's accurate, but, um, you know, certainly not an, on, on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Now, um, just because Muhammad al-Faqih was not a single-minded jihadist, didn't mean that he um, didn't tap into that spirit when it was necessary. And one of his biggest reforms was reorganization of the military. Right? He realizes they just couldn't continue you know, relying on a small band um, to keep them going in all these wars they're having. Um, but by the same token, you don't want the Sultan of Morocco uh, to bring his army because what he's going to do is take over. You know this. So uh, he needed to get manpower, but still keep control of it. And this he does extremely well. So, of course, he uses locals from Granada, okay? But he's surrounded by more powerful neighbors, so he's going to take their extra muscle. And so he recruits a fairly large number of Christian knights. And these were people who had fallen out of favor and, uh, you know, where they came from, whether it was Aragon or Leon, 
um, you know, there were, of course, all these internal struggles going on between the Christian knights as well, and a lot of them have to get out of town. So they take refuge as mercenaries in Granada. But the most significant source of military support is what is called the so-called, uh, in English it's translated as the uh, Volunteers of the Faith. Now in, in Arabic this is Ghazat al-Mujahideen. And I think everybody recognizes the word Mujahideen, right? These are jihad warriors. Um, and, you know, they were featured by that name very recently in our own history. But what this refers to in this specific case is these were Berbers who left Morocco to join the Granada military. And, I mean, they're basically the same thing as the Christian Knights. They were exiles who, for political reasons, fell out of favor uh, with the sultan in Morocco. And so rather than fight or be locked up there, uh, they go across the straits and they're able to find work in Granada. Now, in this case, though, uh, somewhat different than the Christians is because this was be due to warring factions within Morocco, very often you would have like an emir take their entire court and their entire military with them. So I mean, instead of individuals, I mean, you're getting basically these entire Berber units showing up. And this was an appealing option for them because Muhammad would keep them together. Um, and this would go on for a few generations until it became a threat. So what he would do is uh, post them off to border areas and their leaders would essentially become like territorial governors. Now this is great for them because most of these folks had the intention of going back to Morocco one day, uh, either overthrowing the Sultan or waiting for the political winds to change when they will be welcomed back with open arms. And so going there, keeping all your people together, keeping all your units together and armed and trained and making money uh, so that you can go to back to Morocco when you're ready, ooh, that's a good thing. Well, Muhammad expands the numbers of these folks so much uh, that by the end of his reign, he has over 10,000 of them. Now, for the armies of that day, that, that's a huge number of soldiers. I mean, by our standards, no, it's not. By, you know, Napoleon's standards, it's not really that big. Um, for Granada, for these armies, medieval armies, that's a very big force. And they're largely cavalry, which is also very useful. I mean, they, they can do a lot with that. In fact, uh, so important do they become that the leader of the Mujahideen actually becomes an official in the Granadan government. And basically, he's not the defense minister. They've got a defense minister, but this is like another defense minister. Um, so this well, works out pretty well. Okay, well... Despite this, though, I mean, I'm making it sound very political, like people are doing this, you know, for uh, getting themselves ready for political gains. I mean, the jihad spirit is, is actually very real, just as much as the crusading spirit is very real on the Christian side. Um, and it certainly establishes the legitimacy of both Granada and the Maritan leaders by undertaking this jihad. You know, so, for example, the great traveler, Ibn Battuta, 
who, I mean, we did an episode about him. I've got a book about him. You know, he was the greatest traveler of the Middle Ages. Uh, this was the time when he lived, uh, but he actually, he was a servant of the Marinid Sultan in Morocco, who he flatters uh, shamelessly in his books. Uh, but later in his life, he went to Spain to participate in the defense of Granada against who was at that time King Alfonso X. And this is just one more episode in the um, shifting military maneuverings between both sides that now they're fighting Castilla. Uh, but when you read Ibn Battuta's version of this, I mean, it sounds like nothing but a genuine religious duty. He is in Morocco. He hears about the threat to these believers in Spain, uh, and he did. I mean, he was a, a famous guy, well-established. He was close to the Marinid Sultan. He pretty much had it made, uh, but, you know, he feels a genuine religious duty, and he goes off to Spain to fight. He's kind of an old guy by then, and, I mean, he makes Alfonso sound like a, you know, a horrible person, and, and to read this, it certainly doesn't sound like it's political maneuvering. I mean, it sounds like this is, you know, absolutely a religious struggle. And, of course, the reality is that's what it was for a lot of people. It's, it's both things at once. Well, eventually, though, as always happens, you outsource too much of your military power uh, to somebody else, and it becomes dangerous. In this case, though, however, it, it is a testament to the leaders of Granada and the, the generations of strong, intelligent leaders that they have that the Mujahideen do not end up taking over. But by the time we get to the Emir Muhammad V, uh, he would realize they're becoming too independent, they're a threat to power, and so he essentially reigns them in. And what he does is he... He makes them just individual soldiers in his army rather than letting them you know, stay together and keep their own leadership. Well, that in itself is an accomplishment. I mean, this is one of the rare times in this series uh, where we've ever described this situation and the outside muscle doesn't end up taking over. Uh, so this guy, he manages to not only stop them from taking over, but keep using them, use them for what you need. And so this, again, is another uh, indication of the kind of leadership we have. You, you're having good, strong leaders, uh, at least for a while, uh, for, for quite a while, about two centuries. Well, um, Muhammad al-Faqih, in addition to his military reforms, uh, he would reorganize and strengthen the bureaucracy. He would establish a strong treasury. As I said, he expanded the, the courts systems, he expanded trade, but there was one other area in which he competed with Alfonso of Castilla, and that was competing for scholars at his court. And things had not changed in this regard since the, the glory days. Uh, Spain was still home to some of the greatest minds in the Mediterranean region, and rulers, you know, they sought to build prestige by sponsoring the best. Now, you know, this may sound like a little bit of a strange thing. We're talking about a, a kingdom that is fighting for its survival. There's ongoing wars, religious wars. They're making deals to try and survive. But at the same time, they're sponsoring the arts. Uh, and, and they do. Now, while in the past it had been basically the Muslims, almost excuse, exclusively 
in Spain as the ones who were recruiting talent. And if you remember, they were bringing talent from really all over the world that they knew of it um, to come to Cordoba and, you know, develop their, their arts. Now it has become a contest among Christians and Muslims alike. Uh, and this is, you know, one reason why if you look at uh, the names of some of the great scholars of this period, the great Muslim scholars of this period, most of them have Latin names as well. Um, and, you know, that's because if, if they're not going back and forth between sides, certainly their works are being translated on both sides. Um, so... Uh, Muhammad, uh, he he scored some real successes. Uh, he brought some great talent uh, to Granada. Uh, one of whom, for example, was a great mathematician, uh, Ibn al-Raqam, who uh, chose to come to Granada even though he got a big offer, a lucrative offer from Alfonso. Now, there was one stipulation, though, and that was that uh, al-Raqam would have had to convert to Christianity. So maybe he felt that was a little bit too much. Um, but uh, he did. Uh, so, in addition to all of this, of course, uh, Muhammad II continued the work of expanding the Alhambra. And this is, if you remember, the, the name of the family is um, essentially the red, the Muhammad ibn Yusuf is known as um, Al-Ahmar, which means the red. Um, now, Alhambra is a corruption of the Arabic word Alhamra, and Hamra is the feminine for red, and so it means known as the red palace. But uh, Muhammad is the one who really turns this from a fort into a palace, and so that's you know, putting in some of the fabulous things that are in there, uh, of which even more will come along. So every new emir adds to this palace. And of course now it's, you know, probably the biggest tourist site in Spain. Well, things are going great for Muhammad al-Faqih, uh, but he is poisoned. Uh, rumor is that he was poisoned by his son. We don't know about this. Uh, but anyway, his son becomes the Emir Muhammad III, and um, he's another strong leader. He had great success on the battlefield. He won some victories against the Christians, but his biggest venture was to invade across the state, Straits of Gibraltar uh, and take the city of Sueta from the Moroccan Marinids. So he for a while, controlled both sides of the Straits of Gibraltar, which is really significant. Um, so you notice the direction that he's expanding in. I mean, he was fighting against the Christians to the north. He did do that, but his you know biggest ventures are going south against the Moroccans, and he's going into Morocco. Okay, um, so that's pretty impressive. But eh, you know, success is not always the best idea in some cases. Uh, particularly if you're a small fish uh, sandwiched in between two bigger fish, eh, you know you don't want to draw a lot of attention. You know when you when you have three sides or more actually, but three big sides, you, you don't want to emerge as the biggest threat to the other two. So uh, in this case, we get not only Castilla, 
but the Marinids in Morocco and Aragon, uh, not the one from Lord of the Rings, but the uh, Spanish kingdom of Aragon, they all unite against him. Notice that's north and south. So now we've got the Berbers in Morocco uniting with the Christians, essentially the Spanish Christians in Castilla, against the guy who's in the middle. Ooh. So there's a lesson there. Yes, Granada can survive by balancing the forces around it, but they shouldn't overstep their bounds. Well, as it turns out, though, that's not going to be what does him in. And, you know, listening to these stories of this time, I mean, it, it sounds like you're, I don't know, playing a game of coup or, or one of those, you know, games where you have to watch from every side because, I mean, there's just threats coming from inside, outside, all over the place. Uh, as it turns out, this entire branch of the family, the one that started with Muhammad ibn Yusuf, ibn Nasr, um, will end up being overthrown by a rival branch of the family led by someone named Ismail. And so all the future emirs would be of Ismail's line. Now, I don't want that to be confusing because Ismaili, uh, normally when we say that, we're referring to a branch of Shiism. But the point is, uh, I mean, basically, uh, he, he's overthrown by a cousin. And so it's, it's still staying in the family. It's still going to be the rulership of Granada. It's not the, the devolution like we've seen into uh, all these competing principalities. But we do have a new line of the family that takes over. Well, the line of Ismail is noted for being a very strict in enforcing Islamic law. In fact, Ismail himself, he banned alcohol, he enforced the tax on the Jews and the Christians, and he even forced Jews to wear distinctive emblems. Uh, so this is something that definitely didn't start with the Nazis. It, I mean, it happened a lot at times when Jews were uh, persecuted. But significantly, he also won several big battles against Castilla and expanded the territory. So what we can see here is, you know, we have a balancing act going on here. Um, you know, it's not a continuous Christian onslaught with the Muslims fighting, you know, a defensive battle and losing. But there, there is a sense in which they have to balance going on the offensive and using that to bolster their legitimacy but not going too much on the offensive that you get everybody turned against you. Um, and emphasizing the, the flourishing of the kingdom and making it a great place for trade and a place that people want to migrate to, but also keeping up your religious credentials as well. Uh, and, it, you know, it's like if you go too far in any one of these directions, you're going to get overthrown. And, I mean, that's... <laughs> It's happened already a couple of times, and it will continue to happen. But amazingly, Granada holds out, and I mean, does well, really does well, for a lot longer than you might expect.
Okay, well, the Golden Age of Granada itself is generally considered to have been the reign of Muhammad V. And he reigned from 1354 to 91. And there was a brief absence when he was overthrown by his stepbrother. Hey, that's the way things go. Um, you know, he, he fled to Fez, which is the capital of the Marinid Kingdom in Morocco, that other big rival. But he returned with the help of the Castilian King Pedro, who was actually a close friend of his. So again, you see how all these sides are closely uh, related, this point we keep bringing up. But anyway, Muhammad V in that great line, um, and you know, we're talking now a hundred years after the, the kingdom is first founded, so it's still doing really well. He oversaw the greatest expansion of the Alhambra complex, including some of the parts that you would go visit today. Um, like the Palace of the Lions and the famous Lion Fountain in the center of the palace, which is like generally considered the, um, you know, the center of the whole place. Now, this, of course, is an innovation. It's pushing some boundaries because in Islam, we generally don't depict living things and certainly not with statues, or at least until we get to the, the 20th century and the arrival of uh, colonialism, and then they you, you go to Cairo, and there's a statue to everybody and his brother on every street corner. But um, well, that's something you won't find in Saudi Arabia, for example. But in general, in Islam, uh, we don't depict living things. So, uh, you know, a fountain of lions is something unusual. Uh, but because of the time that Muhammad V spent in Fez, he learned a lot about the Moorish style of architecture, which you can still see in some of the famous buildings of Fez today. Uh, meanwhile, he also visited Roman ruins there, and he was quite taken with the Roman style. Now, uh, actually, North Africa, Morocco, and Tunisia in particular, has some of the best preserved uh, Roman ruins in the world, uh, certainly much better than the ones that are in Italy. Uh, so the the horrible movie Gladiator, uh, which has very little else going for it, uh, was actually filmed in Morocco. And actually, just as a note, the best preserved Roman Colosseum in the world is in Tunisia, uh, which is one you definitely want to see. I mean, it looks way better than the one in Rome. Anyway, that, that stuff is still very well preserved. So he's taking all these influences together... Um, and he's putting them into the style. But another big influence on his style was the newly constructed palace of his friend Pedro, the king of Castile. So, I mean, you see he's putting all these styles together to get what we call the Moorish Spanish style, which becomes really typical of the golden age of Spanish architecture today. And so we see how, you know, sort of these kind of political events, which are in some ways sort of unfortunate, work together uh, to leave their imprint on culture. I mean, the fact that this guy gets kicked out by his brother and has to go take refuge in a Berber kingdom in Morocco and then has to go um, stay with his buddy, um, the Castilian king, but it all comes together to create a new fusion of, of architecture, which is um, quite famous uh, today. Okay. Uh, and it's something you will notice um, 
by the way, I mean, my very first glimpse of Moroccan architecture when I saw them was how similar, how much it reminded me of Spanish architecture. And, you know, it's kind of coming the other way. It sort of came from uh, the Berbers. But uh, similar things, the inlaid mosaics, the fountains, and, and so forth. So, I mean, in, in the long run, uh, there is a, a good influence from these uh, rubbing of cultures. And we talked in our episode uh, on the Crusades way back, as bad as the Crusades were, and they were very, very bad, and make no uh, mistake about them, um, but the, the interaction between the Crusaders and the Muslims in Palestine, I mean, it was actually one of the things that led to the Renaissance in Europe. So, it shows that whatever rotten things people do, you know, good comes out of the, the contact. Okay, so this was a great time for the flourishing of the arts. So, some of the greatest poets of Al-Andalus, like Ibn Jayan, for example, this is a time when, when they wrote. And in fact, uh, the Alhambra itself has a lot of poetry carved into its walls, celebrating the greatness of the buildings and how they reflect the paradise of heaven and so on. Um, so, of course, carving words into walls is something that is very common in Islamic architecture, but usually it's verses from the Quran. But if you go to the Alhambra, and you see these verses of poetry, um, distinctive Andalusian uh, poetry, and uh, in, in don't worry, uh, don't feel bad, uh, you know, when I go there and I look at these things, when I even uh, look with native speakers, they always say, well, I, I can't read any of that. So, okay, so don't feel bad if you can't. Yeah. Okay, so in addition to that, during this time frame, some of the distinctive poetic and musical forms of um, Muslim Spain developed. Uh, the most famous of these is the Mawashaha. Uh, which is a, it's a type of poetry, but it also leads to a type of music that is based on it. Uh, and if you want to know what it is, just uh, go on YouTube and you can listen to Mawasha, modern Mawasha. Okay. Um, in addition, what in addition to poetry, what also flourishes is rhymed prose, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's prose that rhymes, but it doesn't have meter to it. Uh, now, you know, I always thought that. Rhyming made it poetry, but you know, actually poetry is based on the meter, the metrics. Uh, but anyway, types, very different types of rhymed poems, like the saja and the regis, uh, flourished during this time. Now, the interesting thing is all of this stuff gets absorbed into Spanish culture and actually is passed off as distinctly Spanish art forms. So, I mean, if you take a a chorus in Spanish civilization. You can read about uh, the great Spanish philosopher Avicenna and the great, you know, Spanish musical style, the Mawashaha. I mean, all of this, all of these people and things are actually uh, Muslim. Okay, so anyway, I mean, this just shows you it, it was a great time culturally. Uh, and this is not unusual, by the way. Some of the greatest periods of cultural production, you know, when we look back, we think, oh, those must have been really, you know, great times where everything was peaceful and nice. In general, that's not the case. And in general, uh, some of the greatest production, not just in Muslim society, but um, throughout the world, 
happen at times of great turmoil. Um, this is certainly true in Chinese culture. We look at some of the greatest productions uh, were made during periods of total uh, chaos. This is when Confucius wrote this example of a perfectly orderly society. It was during a time of absolute chaos and civil war that was absolutely nothing like what he was writing about. So anyway, even if things were going great culturally, uh, still the emirate was suffering a lot. The Pope called a new crusade against Granada. Um, it didn't succeed in bringing down the emirate, but it led to a loss of territory, a siege of Granada, uh, which is always leads to a lot of suffering, and the loss of Gibraltar. And the um, Granada had a very humiliating treaty forced upon them, but they did survive. But much worse than anything the crusading knights could do was the plague. Now, you may have noticed I'm talking, I was mentioning like 1350s, uh, and that, that is the time of the plague. This is when it hit Spain, uh, and in some ways, oddly enough, the plague saved Granada. Uh, the plague killed off the crusading King Alfonso, and he ended his attack on Granada. Now, it decimated the Muslim inhabitants and well, but it pretty much um, wiped out his army. And this is the, one of the things that Ibn Battuta uh, describes in his, um, in his book when he's talking about his time in Spain, uh, about how God struck dead this you know, horrible heathen king, the enemy of God, and, and so forth. But it just shows it was really bad. In general, of course, across the board, uh, Muslim cities fared better than Christian, and we know why that is. It's because of the hygiene practices. Um, you know, by today's standards, uh, you know, typically uh, by pandemic standards, uh, they're not that good. But uh, Muslims did have some sense of hygiene and awareness of medicine. Uh, just the fact that they wash five times a day, you know, this is a big thing. Uh, compared to hygiene standards in Christian Europe during the Middle Ages, which we could pretty much summarize as being non-existent. Or, you know, another way to describe it, just imagine what is the grossest, dirtiest things you could possibly do, and then everybody do those. Um, that, that's pretty much where we, uh, where we would be. Uh, and so... Uh, for example, a big and telling difference was that Muslim scholars understood that this was a communicable disease. Now, I mean, they didn't have immunizations, they didn't really know how to stop it, um, but they had developed the idea that this was a disease that was passed from person to person, and they kind of knew where it was coming from. Um, they knew the big source of it were the ships coming into the ports, which is how the plague got to Europe. It was on fleas. Uh, that were on the on the goods that were on the ships, and they, that much they understood, and and so they were able to use that. Uh, basically, they understood that the only thing they could really do is quarantine. Well, it's sort of ironic because we're in the 21st century with all sorts of high tech medicine, uh, and I mean we can't even contain a disease by quarantining. So uh, they did they did as good as they uh, possibly could. Uh, at the time. Now, um, of course, this knowledge was not unknown in Europe as well. 
uh, and I don't want to oversimplify the difference, but there's uh, on both sides of the divide, there was this tension between those who were looking at this from a medical point of view and how to stop it, and those who were looking at this from a religious point of view. So there were Muslims and Christians, and in fact it's the majority of people uh, on both sides, were saying, I mean, this is a judgment from God. This is why we have the plague. And you shouldn't try to interfere with it. If you know God wants to wipe people out with the plague and you're trying to tell them how to avoid the plague, then you are undermining the judgment of God and that's a bad thing. Now, that happened on both sides, but we, I mean, we can say uh, pretty well that this was a much bigger uh, deal in Christian Europe. I mean, doctors were uh, tried as heretics and witches for suggesting this. Okay. Uh, so among them, however, uh, one of the greatest scholars in this regard was a man named Ibn al-Khatib. Now, if you look up anything about Granada's history, you're going to see this name a lot. And among the many things that Ibn al-Khatib did, uh, his, he was a historian and he wrote the history of Granada. So when we read about anybody, if we read about Muhammad V, we read about anybody, it's always Ibn al-Khatib said this, or he said that, and so forth. Um, he is sort of the source for the day. So, I mean, as long as people remember Granada and study Granada, they will remember Ibn al-Khatib. But he did much more than this. Uh, he was also a, a doctor. He worked in medicine, which, is, as you've seen, is typical the idea of specializing in one discipline uh, solely is, is really a modern thing. Uh, people were generalists back then. So he wrote a very influential text on the plague, which was going on right while he was living, and he discussed the likely ways it was passed on and what we needed to do. Um, and if, if you read it, it just sounds I mean, very, very ironic because you could take almost all of this in... Um, transport it to a press conference uh, today in uh, 2021 with the COVID pandemic. But things like quarantining travelers, especially ships, quarantining the sick, burning the clothes of those who were infected, not sharing utensils and cups, and so on. Uh, you know, so we haven't progressed uh, that far. They didn't have hand sanitizer, but I mean, that was. Um, as well as they could do. Now, uh, Ibn Khatib was uh, condemned by both Christians and Muslims as a, um, as a heretic for teaching people to subvert God's punishment. But it is worth noting that he was sponsored by a, a Muslim state, and, and so he had the official um, support there. Now, he went so far in doing this uh, is to reinterpret a hadith of the prophet. There is a hadith called the plague hadith, which was widely accepted at that time as being true, which said that the plague was a judgment on infidels. Now, it was referring to a different plague, uh, a, a different epidemic that occurred during the prophet's lifetime and which hit hard on the enemies of Islam. Uh, but he said that this was a judgment of from God and a blessing to the faithful. 
So when Ibn al-Khatib starts writing about the plague and saying, okay, this is what we need to do to stop it, uh, there were people who said, wait a minute, we have this hadith of the prophet that says, I mean, this is a blessing from God, so no, you can't. Uh, he famously said, he is quoted as saying that a hadith had to be modified based on scientific evidence available at the time. Now, a lot of people didn't like that. A lot of people today don't like that. I mean, you get in a lot of trouble with some people saying that. But this gives us an idea of what um, the society was like at that time. That you mean, you could say something like this, and it would be widely supported by the government. Okay, um, Man, that's the 1300s. We jump forward to the 21st century, and in a lot of ways it doesn't seem like we've made progress. Um, I mean, even uh, right now, people are making a political and religious thing about not wearing masks. So anyway, that's not what we want to get off on to, but um, just a little interesting contrast. Okay, so... Uh, Ibn al-Khatib was involved not just in writing history, but in making it as well. And like many great scholars, like most of them, uh, he held important political positions. He was actually a very close confidant of the Sultan. Um, but if Ibn al-Khatib represents the Granada of his time, then he definitely embodies the sort of intrigue and politicking that was going on all over the place. Uh, none of which will surprise you if you've been following this series. I mean, we think academia today has a lot of backstabbing and politicking going on. <laughs> uh, much worse. I mean, actual they had actual backstabbing with knives uh, back then. But it's just to show that, the, you know, this was not just sanitary, ivory tower, uh, pontificating going on. Uh, Ibn al-Khatib, like Ibn Sina, like Ibn Khaldun, like uh, all of these people. They lived in tough times. They had to do, I mean, really practical political work. Uh, they had to fight for their survival. I mean, it was, it was tough. So it was not just this, you know, pristine uh, intellectual climate. So anyway... Um, Ibn al-Khatib was involved in this, but by the way, he was not just uh, an innocent victim. He was one of the leading stabbers. I mean, that's how he got his privileged position. Uh, he was not only good at writing, but he was good at taking down his rivals, so let's not feel too sorry for him. So it turns out he was exiled from Granada three times and went to live in Morocco each time. And, you know, this is basically your alternative at this point. You get kicked out of Granada, you go to Morocco. You get kicked out of Morocco, you go to Granada. Uh, maybe uh, you go to one of the Christian kingdoms if you got friends there, which is, you know, common. Uh, so we've talked about the relations between these two sultanates and how they swung back and forth. And, in fact, during one of the, the good points in their relations, Ibn Khaldun, who was well-represented, well-respected in Granada and Morocco, he intervened on behalf of his buddy, Ibn al-Khatib, and convinced the Sultan Muhammad to let him return. And in fact, he did so well that Ibn al-Khatib becomes the vizier, essentially the prime minister. Uh, he even gets appointed as a dual vizier, meaning he runs both the civil and military side of things. So he's like the most powerful guy besides the Sultan. <laughs> but that doesn't last. He gets exiled again. So this shows you how dangerous it is and how fickle it is, but it also shows you how, I mean, you're, 
you know, your life's not over, your career's not over, you can fall out of favor, you go somewhere else where they appreciate your work, and, you know, you can come back and be reinstalled. Um, maybe the cancel culture of our day might learn something, but I don't, don't want to go off onto that. Okay, so, um, anyway, during his good times, Ibn al-Khatib writes books about history, medicine, he writes lots of poetry, he writes about religion, and of course he makes a lot of enemies. He makes enemies for his ideas, but mostly he makes en enemies uh, because of competition and people go, you know, try to find a way to attack his ideas. Uh, so, uh, just to give you some sense of how this guy worked, uh, he's doing great work, but uh, he becomes jealous of Ibn Khaldun, who you remember was the guy who saved him and got him his job. But at this point now, they're rivals. So he gets Ibn Khaldun kicked out of Granada. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's this is the intellectual climate of the day. We, I mean, we've got some of the biggest names in, in Muslim culture of all time. I mean, Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Battuta, I mean, these are the big, big names. Uh, but you still got all this pity uh, going on uh, back and forth. Well, for Ibn al-Khatib, uh, power is a dangerous thing. It's like a two-edged sword. Uh, you know, you can destroy a lot of people with it, but if you have the power to destroy, then that means people will want to destroy you as well uh, before you destroy them, and they sense that this is the kind of guy who likes to destroy people. Well, uh, one of the big rivals that he develops is the chief qadi of Granada. That's basically the leading religious official of religious law. So he feels that Ibn al-Khatib has too much power. The thing he needs to do is to convince the sultan that Ibn al-Khatib is gathering too much power and he's now a threat to the sultan. Well, we have seen countless examples of viziers that have turned their bosses into figureheads. So Muhammad is very wary of this, and um, so the Qadi wants to basically whisper in his ears, convince him that Ibn al-Khatib is a threat. Well, how would you do this in that day and age? Well, you know there's this big rivalry between Granada and Morocco, so what you're going to do is you're going to convince the Sultan that Ibn al-Khatib's loyalty is really to Morocco. And, well, he spent... I mean, he's had three stays in Morocco. He became very close to the sultan there. And so um, that's essentially what happens. The Qadi convinces um, Sultan Muhammad that this guy is really a, a closet uh, Morocco lover. And he's actually, you know, his loyalty is with the sultan of Morocco. And that's it. And so... Uh, Sultan Muhammad turns against Ibn al-Khatib and has him exiled to Morocco. While he's there, the Qadi, who's a religious official, he declares Ibn al-Khatib's writings heretical. Okay, but when we look at his condemnation, it's basically a personal attack. I mean, he's not attacking his ideas as much as they come from this guy I don't like, who's a sleaze. Okay, well... In any way, this seems like it may be no problem for Ibn al-Khatib. Okay, he's been kicked out of Granada. That's happened before. Maybe this is the last time, but he's in Morocco, and he's protected by the sultan there, and the sultan loves him. And so 
um, you know, let them, let them do what they want. I'll just stay here in, in Morocco and I'll become a big star here. Except, as we said, Morocco and Granada are constantly in each other's politics. And so this time, it's the Sultan Mohammed of Granada who supports a coup that overthrows the Sultan of Morocco and replaces him with one of his buddies. And as one of his many acts of payback, now that Muhammad now has the <clears throat> basically influence uh, over Morocco, he has Ibn al-Khatib smothered and his body burned. Okay, now just to remind you, while this is going on, they're fighting against Christian crusaders. Okay, and this is and there's a plague going on. I mean, the plague of all time, and this guy is basically our best medical expert. But, you know, somebody in this ongoing soap opera has convinced me that this guy is a political threat, so we're going to burn him to death. Well, he's already dead, but then we're going to burn him. Uh, okay, so what's happening here is politics has, has interfered with the effective fighting of a virus. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Okay, so anyway, why do we tell you all this, you know, nasty intrigue and sort of soap opera-like drama um, revolving around this one guy? Uh, because when we look at it today, we see the, you know, just a great scholar and all these great things he did. So, wow, I mean, he wrote in all these different areas, medicine, history, and so forth. And, you know, we get an, an image of what life was like and what, you know, his, you know, he must have just spent all of his time in his library writing. When we actually look at what was going on and what he was involved in, in the process of doing all this, I mean, you see, I mean, it's like House of Cards going on here. And so this is just to give us a clarification of what it looks like. You know, was this a golden age? Yes. Was this a cultural flourishing? Yes. In the macro perspective, that's definitely what it looks like. But you get a microscope and you zero in, and I mean, it, it looks like um, something from Young and the Restless or Days of Our Lives or, you know, one of these uh, shows where people are backstabbing each other. Okay, well, despite all of that going on, all of that turmoil, the Emirate of Granada is still shining, and it looks like it can go on for a long time. But, of course, this is not meant to be. Um, so, there's almost a century and a half left, but the Emirate of Granada will fall, uh, and that will be the end of the Muslim uh rule of any part of the Iberian Peninsula. But not only will it fall, there will be a, a devastating surrender and a really humiliating surrender that is imposed upon this emirate, which will leave a, a traumatic mark on Muslim-Christian relations for centuries and definitely up till today. And so that's what we will look at next time. So we hope to see you then. Thank you again for your kind attention, your kind comments. Please stay safe. Uh, heed the words of Ibn al-Khatib uh, and uh, practice that social distancing. We will see you again next time. Shukran jazilin. Wa ma salama.